Hey everyone, it's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian, Lindsay Hanson Park here, thanking you for listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast. This series might be coming to a close soon, but I have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come. If you haven't supported the podcast yet, please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber. Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening. to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going all the way back to episode one. I know that's a long way back, but this series is meant to go in order. I just want to give a few announcements. The final recording for this, I'm going to episode 100, will be at Writ and Vision in Provo, the bookstore Writ and Vision, on June 27th at 7 p.m. Space is limited, so it's going to be a sort of first-come, first-serve situation. But if you want to hear it live, me recording the last episode, set your bar really, really low, you can come out and uh, see me and meet me and you can, there's going to be an art show going on, which is going to be fantastic. So I would recommend coming out to that if you are into that sort of thing. And also I will be at the Sunstone Summer Symposium. That is July 29th through August 1st at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. If you're listening to this from anywhere other than Salt Lake City, I would encourage you to mark that on your calendar and come out. It's a great time. All of these Mormon scholars that I've interviewed will be there. Lots of other really cool, interesting people come out. It's a huge thing, and you shouldn't feel intimidated if you have never been. You should come. You can register on sunstone.org, and uh, you just come, and it's really relaxed, and you will meet a lot of great people, and you don't need to be intimidated at all. And if you're listening to this in the future and this has not, and it's all been passed, well, I'll see you at one of the Sunstones down the road. It's every summer, usually the last weekend in July. I'm just going to tell you that this is going to be a long episode. I am such a dummy. I don't know what I was thinking that I could, you know, spend probably 70 or 80 episodes on one century of Mormonism, or half a century even of Mormonism, and then somehow wait till the very end and do two episodes on an entire century, the entire 20th century of Mormonism. That was a really dumb idea. That was a really dumb idea. And so I've been really, really digging into this history and sort of just picking out the most relevant bits to this history. I could spend another 100 plus episodes talking about 20th century Mormonism and 20th century LDS Mormonism and how it ties in with polygamy because it's a 
It's a huge, huge thing. So I'm just going to tell you some of the, I guess, the most interesting things that I found. And then I'm going to really encourage you to do the extra reading, the links on the podcast and things like that, because there's just so much there. And I really hope in the future that more scholars and historians will be pulling out these threads that I'm talking about and linking them together because I really, you know, my my main thesis in this episode is that the LDS church is not anywhere near away from polygamy. We're absolutely reacting to it still. We are um, shaping a lot of our policies and things like that, our doctrine, our culture after polygamy, and that the LDS church is a polygamous church. And so I'm going to give you some uh, starting places with that. And then I hope, you know, great scholars out there or great listeners out there or whoever can take these threads and really dig in deep and investigate them further. And again, I'm sorry people ask why I'm stopping at a hundred episodes. Who knows? Maybe in the future I'll pick it back up and, um, come back and record more, but I really need to be done at a hundred for a long time <laughs> for my, for my own mental health, unless I want to be in therapy for years and years and years. Doing this research in depth has been really heavy and, uh, I've had, it's sort of changed my life in ways that were unexpected. So I just need a break from talking about this particular subject, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop podcasting. I have some great projects coming up that um, are going to be sort of in a different vein, but still talking about the stories of women. So with that, let's get into an interesting Mormon story. This story is a story of a young girl named Annie Wells. Now, you might know Annie Wells by her last name. If you've been following the series at all, you'll know the last name Wells. This is sort of Mormon feminist royalty when you talk about Emmeline Wells. Well, Emmeline Wells had children and one of her daughters was Elizabeth Wells and we call her Annie. That's what they were. That's what she was called. Annie was the daughter of Daniel Hanmer and Emmeline Blanche Woodward Wells. She was born on December 7th, 1859 in this sort of two-story adobe house on State Street and 2nd and 3rd South in Salt Lake City, Utah. From this little adobe house, she was able to watch the wagon trains and handcarts come right into the valley. And because of who her mother was and the connections that she had, she was able to attend the best schools available at the time, including attending Deseret University. She was taught good appreciation for books and drama and opera. She was a very gifted writer like her mother. And um, she and her sisters would often read out loud and dramatize their own plays. She was said to be a naturally religious child. And um, sometimes she even had those sort of pioneer-esque stories where she's wading through deep snow and the only one who would brave the storm to go to church on her 10th birthday, it was said that her father gave her a New Testament, which she felt it was her duty to read. But even after she read it, she felt that it was supposed to guide her life. So at age 14, she became a member of the Relief Society, a membership she held until the time of her death. Now, things were a little bit different there. It, it was like a society. And as we talk about the more modern church coming up, you're going to see how these societies sort of competed with each other. But this was considered... um something that she was ready for. So at age 14, she becomes a member of the Relief Society. Now, this is where things get interesting. And it's so funny because this whole series has been an exercise in sort of blowing my own mind because I think, you know, everybody, whenever you're talking to someone about Mormon history and you're, you're saying like, yeah, there's some crazy stuff, 
everyone, every Mormon that I know will go like, yeah, I already know all that stuff, right? And then you find out they really don't know all that stuff. Well, it turns out that this should be sort of maybe a lesson to all of us that we don't know all that stuff. And we're going to keep finding out these things that we're like, what? What happens? And this was my experience with this particular story because I thought, um, I kind of thought I'd heard it all on this front and yet the more I research, I keep finding these stories that I'm like, are you serious? Are you serious? Um, this is one of those stories. And part of it has to do with Emmeline Wells. Of course, Emmeline Wells has been, you know, critical in sort of the way that I viewed polygamy and she has changed this. And I'm going to talk about this in episode 100. But I also had a development, a shift in thinking of Emmeline Wells through this story. So back to Emmeline Wells' daughter, Annie. At age 20, she becomes the wife of John Quayle Cannon, George Q. Cannon's son. He was very public and very spirited man. Um, in 1881, he was called to a mission in the British Isles. And then he worked through on his way to Germany. And um, she would, Annie would go join him on some of his missions. And it was during this time that she was traveling in Europe with him that she would write the history and objectives of the Relief Society, which was later translated and published in several languages. Uh, John Quayle was interested in military life. He became an active member in the National Guard for many years and was a brigadier general of the organization. And he also became a volunteer in the Spanish-American War and was elevated to the rank of lieutenant colonel as a result of his service. At the beginning of World War I, Annie would become actively engaged in the Red Cross, and she organized direct Red Cross chapters in Utah. And she became affiliated with the War Mothers Group and was actually elected president. She would do a lot of service through the war, and she was actually chosen by Herbert Hoover, who later became president of the United States, to be Utah's chairman for the European relief drive. And that's a big distinction. She also was uh, elected the vice president of the American Flag Association. And you just sort of see this change of like these, you know, of course, George Q. Cannon and Emmeline Wells were fighting off the government for so long. And here their kids are becoming sort of these patriots and they're joining these patriot organizations and helping the government. Now, what I didn't know, the thing that I was saying that was sort of blowing my mind is I was really interested in the next, the sort of third generation of polygamists. So maybe what the second and third and fourth generations, how they were reacting, especially during this manifesto time. So on a whim, I decided to look at George Q. Cannon's children. And there's this fantastic dialogue article that I think you should all read where it talks about George Q. Cannon's sons and their relationships. And this is where I first stumbled upon the story of Annie Wells. Now, I don't even know how to begin this story. So... In 1884, uh, shortly after John Q. Cannon becomes a general authority, there's this newspaper story that appears in the Salt Lake Tribune. Joseph Lipman published a story where he alleges that John Q. Cannon had taken his wife's sister, Louie Wells, as a plural wife. And of course, uh, Lipman suggests that Cannon and Wells had been married in the Logan Temple. Lippman was actually wrong about that. There was no marriage. It was, uh, there was no plural marriage from John Q. Cannon. But it was actually worse. It was revealed that Buchanan and Annie Wells' little sister, Louie, were having an affair. 
Cannon was so upset that this story was published in the paper that he confronts Lippman in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah, and he demands a retraction of the story. Lippman refuses to apologize or issue a retraction. So Cannon actually punches Lippman in the face and beats him with a whip. It's crazy, right? So Cannon pleads guilty assault to assault and pays a small fine. It gets even better. At the time, Cannon was the city editor for the Deseret News and probably wrote an article about the confrontation between him and Lippman. So you can see the reason why Lippman in the Tribune publishes this, because he's the editor at the Tribune. We have the editor of the Desert News. Those two are like fighting it out publicly. It's crazy. So, of course, it's alleged that he's in this plural marriage, but it turns out to be an affair. What happens is on September 5th, 1886, Cannon was released from the presiding bishopric and excommunicated from the church. After he confessed in a public meeting in the Salt Lake Tabernacle that he and Louis Wells had committed adultery. He was excommunicated right there and then from his uncle, Salt Lake uh, Stake President Angus M. Cannon, because Louis Wells actually was pregnant by Cannon. So George Hugh Cannon instructs Cannon's wife, Annie Wells, to divorce him so that he could instead marry Louis Wells. Again, let's, let's just break this down. John Q. Cannon is married to Annie Wells. They're married. Uh, he gets an, her sister pregnant. He is instructed by church leaders to divorce her and marry his mistress. So he does it. Uh, he divorces her. And after the divorce, he and Louis Wells are actually married by his brother, a more righteous canon, Abraham H. Cannon. And um, it's uncontested. Annie supports this divorce. Some prosecutors later argue that the divorce is not valid because the judge was overly involved. It was Elias Smith who issued the divorce and uh, did this on his own without uh, help of the staff. John Q. Cannon is a married to Louie, and it's said that she later told him that she would think about it when he asked her, but she somehow decides to do it. And on September 10th, 1886, just five days after they're excommunicated, they're married. However, after the marriage, John Q. Cannon is criminally charged with the crimes of polygamy and unlawful cohabitation largely based on the early rumors of Lippman's article in the Tribune. Now, Cannon and Wells acknowledged that prior to their marriage, their legitimate marriage, they had actually considered plural marriage, but for some reason decided against it. So either way, they're still being conflated with polygamy. Of course, polygamy is illegal. This is when the prosecutions are happening. So they're charged with this crime, even though they're not actual plurally married. Now he's divorced and uh, he's married to a sister. And of course... The government isn't buying this story. So they humiliate Louis Wells by putting her on, on trial in this hearing for this, and she has to testify. So after this, she goes to live with her half-sister and brother-in-law, Belle Whitney and Septimus Sears. And it's there that she gives birth to her baby, which is stillborn, and she dies a month later from complications of childbirth. It's said that her mother, Emmeline Wells, was brokenhearted over her death. So the story doesn't end there. It actually gets crazier. John Q. Cannon actually goes and remarries Annie Wells, and they ended up having nine more children together. He was readmitted into the church by baptism on May 6, 1888, but he never regained his position as a general authority. 
doesn't end there. In the 1890s, Cannon and Louis Wells, the woman who died giving birth, were sealed in the Manti Temple in a posthumous vicarious ordinance with Annie Wells standing as proxy for her sister. Even though all of these crazy events happen, it appears that there's little to no mention of the family of John's marriage to Louis or the affair that preceded it, and genealogical records do not note either John or Annie's divorce or their remarriage. Here is what their family says of their union. Quote, For more than 50 years, Annie and her husband John enjoyed love, companionship, and mutual understanding, watching the growth and development of children and grandchildren. Twelve children were born to this outstanding couple, eleven of whom grew to maturity in a home that provided loyalty, courtesy, and affection. It was truly a happy home, according to their daughter, Margaret Cannon Clayton, who provided the information from which this biography was taken. She stated that death came to Annie Wells Cannon September 2, 1942, and comments, Mother died as she had lived, calm, serene, and majestic, ready to meet her loved ones and ready to go forward to greater heights. Certainly, her cup of life was filled to the brim. President David O. McKay, one of the speakers at the funeral service, closed his remarks by saying, quote, All her activities were incidental to her crowning glow of motherhood. End quote. It should note that, that uh, during these hearings, Annie Wells Cannon later testified that she believed that her husband and her younger sister had been in love for some time, and that she actually encouraged John to marry Louis as a plural wife so they could all share in on the blessings. Martha Hughes Cannon, one of the plural wives of George Cannon's brother, Angus, wrote that John Cannon had, quote, twice asked to marry the woman he loved, referring to Louis Wells, but had been denied permission. So we don't know why he'd been denied permission. And I just want to point out from that dialogue article that uh, there were some other messy, loose ends. Um, Frank Cannon, who was also the son of George Cannon and happened to be the actual first U.S. senator in Utah, married Martha Brown, and she died in 1909. So he married her sister, May, the exact same year. So he, too, married sisters. But uh, he was often seen with prostitutes so much, and he fathered at least one illegitimate child. And his sins were so rampant that he was uh, said to owe the famed Utah Wild West madam, Kate Flint, a large tab, and that if he didn't pay his bills to her, she threatened to sue him. And uh, it gets even messier with his family. They're, one of their brothers, David, David Cucannon, died while serving a mission in Switzerland. He was engaged to a Lillian Hamlin, and she was beautiful and intelligent. And uh, George Cucannon actually has Lillian married to his other son, Abraham, as a plural wife. So... I guess I'm bringing this up to talk about how messy this is. This is a generation of of people dealing with polygamy after the manifesto or right before the manifesto or during the manifesto. This episode is called Messy Mormon Polygamy, and I hope you will see how messy this practice is. The church doesn't know how to deal with this. And you have someone like George Q. Cannon, an apostle, his own children go off in all these crazy different ways. Frank Cannon, his son, was excommunicated, um, and he later rejected Mormonism and wrote a book with Harvey J. O. Higgins called Under the Prophet in Utah, exposing the rigidly hierarchical nature of the Mormon organization. And the book sort of denounces church leaders' absolutism and interference in politics. And um, 
details negotiations that Cannon participated in on Utah's behalf, leading to the statehood exchange and the rejection of polygamy. So that happens to him. Abraham goes on to live polygamy successfully, marrying his brother's, you know, uh, fiance. And of course, John Q. Cannon and Annie Wells go and live polygamously, but not polygamously. Uh, they never actually lived polygamy together, but he's sealed to her sister. Also, he's a widower of Emmeline Wells' sister. And I'm kind of disappointed with Emmeline Wells because if you read, if you read sort of what was happening, Emmeline was very much encouraging her daughters to do this. Uh, it was really important to Emmeline to connect her children. You see that she connected a lot of her children in sort of these dynastic marriages through other church leadership. And, uh, at the risk of her own daughter, she actually was in there encouraging her daughters to forgive John Q. Cannon. She, encouraged her own husband to forgive John Q. Cannon and uh, let this family situation be sorted out. Polygamy is messy. It gets even messier. So now I'm going to let Sarah Hanks, who is a descendant of the family she's going to talk about, tell one of, this is another fantastic, messy story. It's a story of Amy Brown Lyman and Richard Lyman. So I'll let Sarah go ahead and tell that story. I'm here to tell you about a story from church history that I find so fascinating. It's the story of Amy Brown Lyman and Richard R. Lyman. Um, the two main sources for this story that I've found helpful are two articles from the Journal of Mormon History, one by Dave Hall and the other by Bergera, Gary James Bergera. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I will provide links to those so that you can learn more um, because there are so many details in the story that we just don't have time to go into. But it's a really interesting tale that has a lot to do with polygamy, has a lot to do actually with uh, feminism, the changing role of women in the church. And so I think it's, it's really, um, it, it could be really fascinating for the Mormon feminist community. So I want to start by telling you about Amy Brown Lyman. She was born in 1872 and grew up in, Pre- in Pleasant Grove. Um, she was eventually, uh, she became the Relief Society president in 1940 to 1945. And she actually served on the Relief Society general board all the way from 1909. So she had a really long history in the Relief Society. And in fact, her family had been very involved in Relief Society. She grew up in, um, a, a family where plural marriage was practiced. Her father had three wives. And she wrote in the Relief Society magazine in 1942 about uh, what she called her second mother, who was actually her father's first wife, who had been um, the Ward Relief Society president and had a lot of responsibilities. Um, she says, uh, and she talks about how Eliza R. Snow and Zina D.H. Young would, you know, were associates of of this second mother of hers. She says... My closest contact with sisters Snow and Young was when they came to our home on several occasions to bless and comfort my semi-invalid mother. On one occasion, we children were permitted in the room and were allowed to kneel in prayer with these sisters and later to hear their fervent appeals for mother's recovery. They placed their hands upon her head and promised that through our united faith, she would be spared to our family. This was an impressive spiritual experience for us and the fulfillment of this promise, a testimony. So Amy uh, graduated from Brigham Young Academy in 1890. She studied at the University of Utah, University of Chicago, and 
Cornell University. Um, in addition to her responsibilities with Relief Society, she also served in the Utah State Legislature and was an officer in the National Council of Women. Um, the interesting thing about Amy Lyman is, you know, she, she was a very influential person in the leadership of the Relief Society. This was a time when there was a, a popular idea at the time about separate spheres for men and women, you know, and women were kind of protectors of the hearth and men were kind of, you know, their sphere was the larger world, whereas women were supposed to, of course, you know, take care of the home and the children. But in connection with that, there was sort of this, this assumption and this belief among many women of the day in and out of the church that women's sphere also compelled them to to reach out into the community thinking, you know, if my, if my responsibility is to make sure that my children are, are cared for, that my family is safe and healthy, then that means I need to make sure this community that they're living in is also safe, that it can help them be healthy. And so that was a way that women's responsibilities were extended. Um, Amy Lyman, along with many of her contemporaries, brought this belief into the Relief Society. You know, early Relief Society sisters had fought for suffrage, and their responsibility, as they saw it, was to take care of many of the social ills of the day. Lyman had been interested in social work since taking a course at the University of Chicago in the summer of 1902. When Joseph F. Smith called her as General Secretary of the Relief Society in 1913, he charged her to make a special study of the subject with a view toward updating the church's charitable practices. One of Lyman's most far-reaching projects, pursued at the urging of President Smith, was her organization in 1919 of the Relief Society Social Service Department, which was a forerunner of LDS Social Services, or LDS Welfare Services. Her focus on social work harmonized with the national agenda of the progressive era, which further increased the society's achievements and prestige. Lyman drew on the society's legacy of broad-based collective activism to involve large numbers of its rank and file in the problems of an increasingly complex society. In so doing, she led Mormon women into the front lines of modern social work as they studied and trained to use efficient and effective methods of delivering aid to those in need, becoming, in effect, a veritable army of social work paraprofessionals. Perhaps her greatest accomplishment occurred during the 1920s when, with the encouragement of Clarissa Smith-Williams, who was the Relief Society president at the time, she orchestrated the society's Herculean attack on the high rates of infant and maternal mortality in the Intermountain West. So this was a... something that was very important to Amy, something she saw as part of the Relief Society's mission and that she saw as empowering to the members of Relief Society. She herself wrote... um, when she became Relief Society General President, how Relief Society women can can improve the world around them. Um, she talks about it gives women an understanding of the interdependence of individual and community betterment, broadening their interest in the community and helping them to be intelligent, helpful, cooperative citizens. So basically, under Lyman's leadership, Relief Society women became you know, they, they lobbied for important, um, legislation. They, they worked on, you know, efforts to improve their communities in, in terms of health and in terms of, you know, moral upstanding and, and things along these lines. Um, 
Interestingly, though, there was a, a very key development, and this is actually the focus of Hall's essay or, or uh, article in the Journal of Mormon History, and that has to do with J. Reuben Clark. Um, J. Reuben Clark was an apostle, and he was uh, first counselor in the first presidency during the time that Amy was General Relief Society president. But actually, um, President Heber J. Grant had, you know, his health was ailing. And so this was one of those situations where the first counselor in the first presidency, you know, has much more influence because the prophet is ill. Um, J. Reuben Clark had a history on the East Coast. He, he worked in government and law. And in many key ways, he and Amy saw things differently in terms of the, the relationship that the church should have to the larger community, the, the nation, um, the, the federal government even. And I'm going to quote here again from the article by Hall. Uh, based on his own experience, speaking of J. Reuben Clark, no doubt reinforced by that of his Eastern peers, he saw a division of labor as the natural roles of the genders. Men were to make a living and women were to make a home that would be an emotional refuge for their husbands and they were to raise the children. Anything else that claimed the attention of women he saw as a distraction and a deviation. It was almost the polar opposite from the perspective toward women held by Lyman and many others in the church who had witnessed the Relief Society's dynamic activism of the 1910s and 1920s and could bear record of the benefits it brought to the Mormon community. These women held to traditional roles in many ways. Quote, basically, these women, you know, they were traditional women. They had children. They, you know, they, they believed in separate spheres. Um, but in their view, a woman's sphere of home and domesticity and child rearing had a natural connection to creating communities in which, you know, families and children could, could be safe and could thrive and could be good people. Um, and this was an interesting observation from Hall. In comparison to Clark, Lyman could best be termed a feminist, although not a radical one. She was rather a cultural feminist. She did not challenge the idea that men and women had separate yet complementary roles to play in society, but she was strongly committed to equality in employment, equal pay for equal work, and the necessity of women's involvement in community affairs, including politics. Lyman was especially committed to what she and others of her generation termed organized womanhood. This meant women working together as women to pursue desired reforms, especially in such areas as social welfare and public health. As Lyman watched the benefits that members of the Relief Society brought to their communities through collective activism, she recognized the corresponding gains in confidence and self-esteem that came to these women through their participation in these endeavors. So, you know... J. Reuben Clark and Amy uh, Brown Lyman, they they had had many differences. They they worked well together in some ways. And actually, J. Reuben Clark asked for Amy's support in terms of his welfare plan, and she she absolutely supported him and supported that plan. And Amy basically took the approach of compromising on lesser things but holding firm on the more important things. There were things that Clark saw as unnecessary distractions that she knew to be really important and, and really, really useful to the Relief Society women and to the church as a whole. Um, there were some unique challenges to Amy's time as a Relief Society president um, brought by World War II. Um, she was president from 1940 to 1945, so that, you know, that pretty much ran the, the tenure of her time. However, her greatest challenge came on the personal front through um, the dramatic excommunication of her husband, Elder Richard R. Lyman, who was an apostle. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Richard. 
He was born in 1870 in Fillmore, Utah. His father and also his father's father uh, were also apostles. And so, you know, this is this is church royalty at this point. Um, three generations of Lyman men being a part of the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, Richard attended Brigham Young Academy and then the University of Michigan, uh, where he earned his Bachelor of Science degree. He was a civil engineer. He worked for Provo City. He later worked um, for the University of Utah, where he founded and chaired the civil engineering department. He and Amy married in 1896, and they had two children, a son and a daughter. And in 1918, Lyman was ordained an apostle by President Joseph F. Smith. And keep in mind that even though he entered the quorum well after the Second Manifesto of 1904, he was serving with apostles who, you know, had practiced plural marriage and had, you know, kind of been doing the whole double speak thing of, of we're not, we're not performing these plural marriages all the while actually performing them. Um, one example would be Anthony Ivins, um, who served in the quorum at the same time as Richard. Um, from what I could read, um, and this is mostly in the, um, the article by Bergera, um, it sounded like Richard Lyman was kind of a beloved apostle. I, I saw clear connections to, to Elder Holland who, you know, people just tend to love him and, and he, he really favored the church's practical teachings and he, he cared a lot about the youth and he talked a lot about the word of wisdom. Um, and this was a quote that I thought might be particularly interesting to those of us who are kind of on the or unorthodoxy spectrum in Mormonism. He wrote this in, in his journal in 1929, um, after a meeting, uh, with the Quorum of the Twelve. He says, perhaps the most important matter discussed was my appeal for greater charity toward our church members whose views are not strictly orthodox. I say if 100 of the most successful, most ambitious, most prosperous, most studious, and most successful church members are being pushed out of ward activity, if not out of the church, then there may be something wrong with the leadership somewhere. Um, it sounded, you know, from what I agree, like he was a very warm, outgoing um, fellow and also had a had a reputation for getting a little fresh sometimes um, with with the women that he associated with. In 1922, Lyman was asked um, to help investigate the case of a man named Victor Hegstead. He was a Danish immigrant and he had been engaging in unsanctioned plural marriage. He had a, one wife, but then had, had married two additional ones, including Anna Sophie Jacobson. Um, and this was, you know, sometime after the Second Manifesto. Anna, um, Anna Jacobson was born in 1872 in Denmark to LDS parents um, who had joined the church there and then migrated to the United States. So, so this was a situation where a man, Victor Hegstead, had more than one wife and he was being disciplined by the church leadership. And so in response, Hegstead left Anna so that he could avoid excommunication. He relocated to Arizona. Anna, however, was excommunicated for her involvement. And, uh, Lyman had helped to investigate the plural marriages and was later asked, by President Ivins, interestingly, he was asked to supervise Anna's return to church activity. And um, he wrote this in uh, 1956 in a letter. He said, the woman involved came here from a foreign land, a convert to the church. Thinking it was proper for her to do so, she married in polygamy and for so doing was excommunicated from the church. President Ivins thought she was unfairly treated and he put on me the responsibility of getting her back into the church. I did this. Since she had had her church membership in Idaho, this took a long time, and it required my holding many intimate interviews with the woman. 
Um, Lyman and Jacobson beca- became closer and closer. Um, she, he wrote that she was concerned because she was getting along in years with little or no hope of having a husband in the great beyond. And as they met, you know, continued to meet and became closer, the two fell in love. And on November 9th, 1925, they agreed, according to Lyman, quote, that when death took either of us, the other would undertake to have us sealed to each other in a temple ceremony. Um, Lyman was 54 and Jacobson was 53 at that point. And Lyman reportedly looked upon Jacobson as a prospective plural wife. And he encouraged her to stay in the church. He, he visited her. He, he tried to keep things, you know, above board, um, only visiting her during the day, never going into her apartment. Um, but following Lyman's presidency over the church's European mission, the separation and everything kind of I, I guess it made the heart grow fonder in a way. And when Lyman returned back to Salt Lake City, he eventually accompanied Jacobson to her small Center Street apartment. This, he later confessed, led to a temptation I did not resist. Um, and so their their relationship continued over the next four years. Word of Lyman and Jacobson's affair first surfaced in um, 1943, October 1943. Um, J. Reuben Clark, he, he comes up again here, he received reports that one of the church's apostles had been seen acting suspiciously. For the previous years, um, Clark had had used um, the, the local police department, covert surveillance, and things like this, um, trying to find modern-day Mormon polygamists. And in this situation, that that's very likely how, how Richard and Anna's liaison came to light. Um, Apostles Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee were instructed to investigate the allegations and, if necessary, to gather proof of Lyman's transgression. And if you can just imagine this scene, okay, think about basically what happened was these these apostles, Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee, decided that after their next quorum meeting, they would secretly follow um, Richard wherever he went and they they rounded up policemen to like be part of their their crew and they did in fact follow um follow him to her center street apartment and after it it, i'm going to quote here after assuring themselves that lyman was inside they entered the apartment to confront the couple um this confrontation occurred in the early evening on thursday november 11th 1943 and to be quite frank, they busted down the door. They found um, Richard and Anna in bed together, and they they took them away down to Temple Square, not too far away, to to kind of interview them and figure out what was going on. In a 1949 letter to Elder Stephen L. Richards, Lyman wrote, Does it not appear to you to have been a strange way to treat a friend, after being in session with him all day under such conditions, that at the slightest whisper he could have been held and he would gladly and quickly have explained his conduct? I say, does it not seem to have been most unkind to have sent after him, not an automobile full, but a bus as large as a streetcar, full of armed officers who split and smashed down the door as if they were endeavoring to capture the worst kind of wicked armed and fighting criminal. The chief of police, Reed Vetterly, told me immediately afterward that if he had known that I was the one involved, he would not have permitted the officers to do it, to say nothing of his leading it himself as he did. He was only told that they were after a big shot. 
Now, as to my offense, for reasons that seemed to me to justify it, I agreed to regard that woman as my wife, and she agreed to regard me as her husband. While no written note was made of this agreement at the time, the date, I feel sure, was November 9, 1925. This relationship had gone on for 18 years in a most quiet way before the publicity of more than six years ago. So the next day after this, you know, dramatic turn of events, the 12 were called together and they, they brought charges against Richard Lyman and, you know, deliberated. He, he presented his defense, but he admitted that it was true. Um, and the, the quorum moved to excommunicate him. Um, there were two, uh, accounts of this from, from men who were there that I thought were particularly poignant. Elder George F. Richards wrote, um, I had a phone call from the office informing, informing me of a special meeting of the 12 called for 2 p.m. in the temple today. It was there that I learned that Richard R. Lyman was to be tried for his standing charged with immoral conduct. Evidence showed that he had been discovered in bed with a woman not his wife, this by officers of the law and certain brethren accompanying them. He confessed his guilt and stated that it had been carried on for ten years or more and that he had had similar associations with other women before he was made an apostle. As senior apostle next to, next to the president of the quorum, I felt it my duty to make the motion for excommunication, which I did between sobs of sorrow. The motion was as follows. I move that Richard R. Lyman be excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for unchristian-like and immoral conduct. The motion was seconded by Elder Joseph Fielding Smith and carried unanimously. Elder Spencer W. Kimball wrote in reference to Richard, his written confession was read, and he, being present, did not deny the accusation nor the confession. He also told of the situations. He had little to say. He was as pale as could be. He minimized his act and seemed to feel that it should be overlooked, but showed no repentance and expressed no sorrow for his sin. He tried to link his sin with polygamy, but the evidence gave no corroboration to the story. It was a terrible ordeal. To see great men such as the members of this quorum all in tears, some sobbing, all shocked, stunned by the impact, was an unforgettable sight. No tears from him, but plenty from the rest of us, and what a heart-rending experience. After considerable discussion, a motion was made, seconded, and we voted unanimously to excommunicate him from the church. When he retired, he said goodbye and shook hands with each of us and left the temple, his quorum, his church. Still stunned, almost beyond recovery, the members seemed to be yet unable to believe the terrible truth. Three months later, um, the Twelve formally excommunicated Anna for her involvement. The, the Twelve had met with her and, um, and had a lot of sympathy for her. Um, one wrote that it was a sad story full of pathos. My sympathy went out to her in her distress. But she was ultimately excommunicated, this meaning that she had now twice been excommunicated for involvement in, in polygamous situations. And she remained in her small Center Street apartment for the rest of her life. Now, when it comes to Amy, you know, of course, this was terribly humi humiliating for her. She was shocked. She couldn't believe it at first. She kind of gathered in her loved ones around her and, and, and came into a state of seclusion for a while. And actually, she was encouraged by some leaders of the church to divorce Richard, move to California, be with her family, kind of start over. But 
but she refused to do that. She told family members that in every other way, he has been an ideal husband and father, and she wasn't going to leave him now. And she she didn't um, step away from her Relief Society responsibilities either. She was, of course, embarrassed and, and everything, but she returned to the Relief Society offices. And in fact, um, on her first day back, David O. McKay escorted her back kind of in a public show of support. But honestly, it and I'm going to quote here, I thought that this was absolutely true from this article by Hall. It would be hard to imagine a situation more difficult for Lyman, personally or professionally. Richard's excommunication publicly humiliated her. From a religious perspective, his transgression called into question the status of their temple marriage, and with it, her own standing in the eternities. More immediately, her professional accomplishments were now held up to a new kind of public scrutiny. Indeed, many blamed her, expressing suspicions that wifely inattentiveness to a husband's emotional and sexual needs, resulting from her harried professional life, had led him to seek a more satisfying relationship elsewhere. As for J. Reuben Clark, Richard's excommunication seems to have signaled the end of any flexibility regarding a refocusing of the Relief Society's agendas. He's, he likely saw Lyman's continued presence as Relief Society General President as a highly visible reminder of the scandal brought upon the church. Under the circumstances, it would not have been surprising if Clark had viewed Amy Lyman as Exhibit A for what might happen in a marriage when women leave their appropriate sphere. J. Reuben Clark asked... Amy to resign from her post as Relief Society president, and she did that in uh, in the summer of 1944. For unknown reasons, that resignation wasn't processed or honored right away, and it actually wasn't until 1945 that she was formally released, and um, thus ended her presidency kind of in a little bit of a shroud of humiliation and ultimately bowing to J. Reuben Clark's um, request that she leave the office. Richard Lyman really tried to rationalize his relationship with Jacobson, saw it as, as a kind of marriage, and he really couldn't understand um, his colleagues' harsh reaction, especially their decision to expose him publicly. They they published in the Deseret News not details of what had happened, but that he had been excommunicated for violating the law of chastity. Over time, his resentment really festered, and he he felt that it wasn't fair. Lyman made repeated attempts to be rebaptized through communication with members of the Quorum of the Twelve. In, in 1952, he appeared before the Quorum and made his case. Of that same meeting, Spencer W. Kimball wrote, he excused his trouble on the grounds of plural marriage, claiming that he and the woman had an arrangement. This she denied for their eventual sealing for eternity. He admitted the sexual experiences, but seemed to feel that they were not so bad in view of the circumstances. After his extended outbursts and explosions, he calmed down, apologized partially, at least explained, and then sat submissive in a sense, expressing a willingness to do anything required of him. There was little or no evidence of repentance, but much of self-justification. Eventually, about 11 or 12 years after he had been excommunicated, Richard was recommended for rebaptism. Elder Kimball wrote, We interviewed him again and felt that he had come a long way and had earnestly tried to meet all requirements. We interviewed Sister Lyman also and found that she stated she had forgiven him fully, knowing all the facts, and that she would be happy if he could be given membership. Accordingly, we felt to report the situation, and personally, I hoped the brethren would accede to his request. On October 27, 1954, Lyman was rebaptized and reconfirmed a member of the church. This was just shy of his 84th birthday. He was rebaptized, but that didn't mean that he had a, the priesthood. Um, he, and in fact, 
in his life, the priesthood, the temple endowment, his eternal marriage ceiling, these would never be restored. He did make one appeal asking that, that they be restored, but that was denied and he didn't push the issue beyond that. Um, during Richard's declining years, Amy helped to nurse him through some health problems and, um, and actually Amy preceded Lyman in death. She, she suffered complications from a fall and she died, um, in 1959. And it was actually earlier that year that Anna as well, who never married again, died in a Salt Lake hospital. Lyman, Richard Lyman had not claimed to not be associated with her for many years. And that was a condition of his rebaptism. Lyman died, Richard Lyman died in uh, 1963 at the age of 93. And Hubie Brown of the first presidency spoke at his funeral. Um, so that about concludes the story. Um, you can certainly read more. There are so many interesting details about Amy's time as Relief Society president, her association with J. Reuben Clark, Richard's relationship with Anna. These are really interesting stories that you can read more about in the links that I'll provide. I think it's an interesting example of the way that polygamy lingers and how, you know, if it's not disavowed as part of the doctrine, and especially if you have people who grow up believing that it's that it's divine and that it's it's the way things really should be, the way God really wants things to be, then it lends to to deception. I can't help but wonder how things would be different if Amy had continued to be Relief Society president. At that time, you know, Relief Society presidents served for much longer than they do now. And um, I, I admire her efforts. I admire her her forward thinking and her, her commitment to the Relief Society. And um, ultimately, this is just a really fascinating tale to me from church history, especially considering that it happened not all that long ago. Interesting, right? So I've provided some links on that and I would, I would absolutely encourage everyone to go look into this story, read more about it. Uh, there's accusations that politics were involved and it's just, it's so, it's so interesting. It brought me to the story of a man who, who actually was in charge, you know, the stick president, Nicholas and his story and the story of his children. And, uh, I just think the whole thing is fantastically interesting. Here's what D. Michael Coyne says about the messy history of Mormon polygamy. Quote, one of the most painful demonstrations of that fact has been continued, the continued spread of unauthorized polygamy among the Latter-day Saints during the last 75 years, despite the concerted efforts of the church leaders to stop it. Essential to this church campaign is the official historical argument that there were no, no plural marriages authorized by the Church of the First Presidency after the 1890 Manifesto, and that whatever plural marriages occurred between 1890 and the so-called Second Manifesto of April 1904 were the sole responsibility of two renegade apostles, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley, a lifelong opponent of post-1890 polygamy. J. Reuben Clark spearheaded the administrative suppression of the polygamous fundamentalists from the time he entered the First Presidency in 1933, but he ruefully noted in 1945 that one of the reasons why the so-called fundamentalists had made such inroads among our young people was because we had failed to teach them the truth. 
The truth that he was speaking of was that more than 250 plural marriages occurred from 1890 to 1901 in Mexico, Canada, and the United States by authorization of the First Presidency, and by action or assent of all but one or two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The official denial of the fact in LDS church statements and histories actually has given credibility to the fundamentalists in their promotion of new plural marriages after 1904 in defiance of the first presidency authority. Despite his recognition of the problem, President Clark himself was trapped within an administrative policy of historical defensiveness, which he did not create and which he decided not to resist. The continued battle of church authorities against present-day polygamy might have been more successful had they encouraged a full disclosure of authorized post-manifesto polygamy that would enable a contrast to be made with the unauthorized polygamy that had continued to the present. This would certainly respond to J. Reuben Clark's assessment of the situation 36 years ago and would also reflect church president John Taylor's philosophy. Some people say, which is, quote, some people will say, oh, don't talk about it. I think a full free talk is frequently of great use. We want nothing secret nor underhanded. And for one, I want no association with things that cannot be talked about and will not bear investigation, end quote. Now, I think that this is an important element, the secrecy. Mormonism struggles with this. They always have. They've had from the beginning of the church organization what is secret and what is sacred? How do those two intersect? What does that mean for the people? What does that mean for the leadership? How much does the general membership know? It's sort of this class system, if you will, of information. And uh, the leadership see themselves as having the higher levels of information. And of course, we know that in the 20th century, Second anointings are still hap were still happening and possibly are still happening now. So there is this hierarchy of level of information that some people are allowed, maybe more meat than the general membership. And uh, this is the way that the church is set up. This idea that uh, the higher up you are, the more information you can have, is certainly not exclusive to Mormonism. But I want you to keep in mind that this secrecy and it's a real fuzzy line between what is secret and what is sacred is going to influence a lot of these policies that we see today. As we talk about the messy loose ends of polygamy, I hope you'll, you'll remember that a lot of these things we're going to talk about was not made known to the general membership. Their policy, like Michael Quinn was referring to, is we're not going to talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it'll go away. Now, there, the church leadership at the beginning of the 20th century is stuck with its really big dilemma. Do we talk about it? Do we, are we open about our history? Thus acknowledging to the public that we are a polygamous church, that we did sanction these post-manifesto marriages, and uh, putting the doctrine out there and letting people know that, yes, we are technically supposed to be practicing this, but we can't anymore. Or do we not talk about it, forget it ever happened, and punish those who do talk about it? It's a dilemma, because if they do talk about it, as we will see, as we have seen in the series, talking about it leads people to living it. Not talking about it, <laughs> as Michael Quinn was pointing out, still leads people to living about it, because then, living it, because then they find out, they feel betrayed, and they go and research down the fundamentalist hole, and they become Mormon fundamentalists. 
the church really changed um, during the 20th century. During the entire later half of the 19th century, the history of Mormonism is marked by the gathering of the church adherents into the Great Basin region of the Rocky Mountains. But the 20th century witnesses trends that go in almost the opposite direction. The church begins to expand the stakes of Zion wherever in the world they may be. Former Vice President of BYU and LDS Church Historian William Edwin Barrett wrote this book for the CS curriculum in his book, The Restored Church, quote, that in 1900, church membership was a total of 236,316, with 73% of the membership, which was 172,623 people, living in Utah, and about 90% of the church living in Utah, Idaho, and Arizona. Between 1900 and 1938, the church membership would increase 332% by Barrett's estimations. Now, there's some problems with his numbers, but he claims that the number of saints rose to 386,139. If these estimations are true, this is an interesting time period for conversions. Suddenly, between 1900 and 1930, polygamy is off the table, at least publicly, and wasn't an impediment anymore to the conversion that it once was. Now all of a sudden the church starts to focus its areas on other things. They don't have to have the shame of polygamy hanging on their back, although they still do. But it seems like people can swallow Mormon doctrine a little bit more without the polygamous doctrine attached to it. Missionaries are still trying to gather people to Zion. And, you know, at this time in the early 20th century, members are slowly starting to trickle in and immigrate into Utah. But the Depression in the 1930s really slows down the conversions and, of course, the immigration. And then the war took its toll on the entire, on the entire world, as well as the church. But it did do wonders for the church globally. Let's, let's check it in and see where, where the church was with polygamy at this time. Now, if you've been following the series, you know that Mormon fundamentalists are sort of gathering in the 20s and then organizing in the 1930s. So in June of 1933, the First Presidency, who comprised of Heber J. Grant, Anthony W. Ivins, and J. Reuben Clark, Jr., issue an official statement, which they publish in the Desert News Church section. And this is sort of called the Final Manifesto. It was actually penned by Second Counselor J. Reuben Clark and warned that, quote, that polygamous or plural marriages are not and cannot now be performed and was written in order that there may be no excuse for any church member to be misled by the false representations or the corrupt, adulterous practices of the members of this secret and by reputation, oath-bound organization, end quote. And this declaration did more than just clarify church doctrine and advise church members. It also assisted in sort of transforming this ragtag collection of polygamous sympathizers into a cohesive movement. So with Joseph Musser at the typewriter, John Woolley and, or Lauren Woolley and Broadbent and Barlow, they fire back by publishing one of the most revolutionary teachings to ever emerge from Mormon fundamentalism, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. So J. Reuben Clark writes this thing called the man final manifesto saying, we absolutely will not tolerate it. He calls anyone living in polygamy adulterous and, uh, they start to really begin to stigmatize the church. And of course, we start to see the raids happening and a lot of prosecutions happening in the church. The LDS church starts aiding 
the federal authorities in helping turn these people in. And the fundamentalist fathers of the groups respond by really organizing. They get their ducks in a row. They, they publish this new material. They start gathering. So it really sort of codifies this movement. I'm going to read to you from In Kidnapped from the Land, The Government Raids on the Short Creek Polygamists by Martha Sontag Bradley. And she de- details how the mantle of dealing with polygamists falls on J. Reuben Clark, because I feel like that's an important part of this story. She says, as early as 1931, J. Reuben Clark and Heber J. Grant had adopted a new approach that would become standard procedure by 1950, namely sidestepping the subject to avoid unnecessary publicity. And this is what we just talked about, how they didn't want to talk about this. This is how we see these procedures and things, policies start to become secretive. Quote, we have hesitated somewhat to make public statements or denials to charges and false assertions published in literature sent out by these enemies of the church and its administration, J. Reuben Clark said at the April conference that year, because we have felt that added publicity to their pernicious statements would be gratifying to these and probably useless in stemming their activity, end quote. Another important change in the dialogue of the 1930s reflected a new development in the nature of the enemy. During the decade, the church faced organized fundamentalist polygamists who now began to make claims to priesthood authority to perform plural marriages in opposition to the priesthood claims of the church. LDS church leaders' future statements about the principle in public discourse now usually dealt with fundamentalists who were actively recruiting new members, encouraging others to ignore the manifesto, and criticizing the church position as fallen in their own discourses and publications. In 1933, two years after Grant's 1931 stand, J. Reuben Clark Jr., Grant's indefatigable counselor, drafted an official statement published over the signatures of the First Presidency in the Church News section of the Desert News. It censured the renewed interest in the corrupt, adulterous practices of the members and gave a careful accounting of the history and controversy which had raged since the 1890 Manifesto, summarized the legal action that had been taken against the church by the federal government, cataloged doctrinal support for the support of the principle, and described the continued practice of polygamy outside of Mormonism. An attorney, J. Reuben Clark, stressed that the contractual nature of marriage union and the legal discontinuation of the principle, rather than the fact that it had once been claimed to be a revelation. Featuring Clark's typical erudite candor, the document virtually eliminated the possibility of further misrepresentations of church policy. This official statement also clarified LDS doctrine of celestial marriage. The document carefully distinguished between celestial marriage and plural marriage. Now, this is interesting because it used to be polygamy versus plural marriage, and plural marriage and celestial marriage were sort of interchangeable. But this is what J. Reuben Clark does. He distinguishes now celestial marriage and plural marriage. He says, quote, Monogamous marriages for time and eternity, solemnized in our temples, in accordance with the word of the Lord and the laws of the church, are celestial marriages. This flat statement dismantled the fundamentalist logic for continuing plural marriages because only theirs were considered celestial marriages. Up until this point, there was marriage and there were ceilings, but celestial marriages, the highest orders, are plural marriages. And here we see a shift in LDS rhetoric that now monogamous marriages 
within the laws of the church are considered celestial marriages. It sort of served as a catalyst for help unifying these groups, like I just mentioned before, to try to determine the motives that impelled past public figures to act as they did is always difficult. Why, for instance, did Grant and Clark intensify their attack on new polygamists? At least Three factors seem important to Martha Sontag Bradley. First, church leaders must have tired of the continued government and media harassment with their repeated accusations of either the church's bad faith or impotence in stopping the practice. Second, they wanted to resolve the confrontation with fundamentalists whose strident claim to the priesthood authority hit directly at the position of the church president, who, according to official church policy and doctrine, had sole possession of the keys of the ceiling. So this is important, too. If fundamentalists had never made claim to a priesthood authority, perhaps the church would have privately sympathized with them. They would have said, yeah, you know, it's true. We did have to pull this official. We've put everyone in a bad position. That's too bad. But what the fundamentalists started to do was say, uh-oh, we have to keep marrying people. How are we going to do this? And so they find a way to claim authority. And... uh there are some legitimate arguments for their claims of authority. And because they were claiming authority, now it came in direct opposition with the LDS church's authority. And um, there's this whole redefinition of priesthood and, and the way that the priesthood is set up. Now, of course, with correlation in the 1960s, the priesthood is reorganized in a different way um, in the LDS church. And so this fuels fundamentalism even more. But according to Martha Sontag Bradley, the third reason that would have made J. Reuben Clark and Heber J. Grant really go for an attack on the fundamentalists is these men must have surely been affected personally as relatives and friends continued on a path that seemed lead them from the fold. And of course, we've talked about this, that Heber J. Grant um, was a polygamist, but only had a child after um, 1890. And of course, he pled a charge of unlawful cohabitation, and they had to deal with people like Lyman that we just talked about, and um, all of these other other. I mean, there's there's so many stories of people around them. This is what I mean by pulling out the threads. If you type in a name, one of these guys, and type in their name into Google with polygamous behind it, you're going to find a connection. Um, there was a highly publicized excommunication of Alpha Higgs, who was President Grant's personal friend and colleague, as well as the general secretary of the church's Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association and the assistant manager of the publication, The Improvement Era. And this upset and grieved Grant because he had to excommunicate his own best friend. J. Reuben Clark was embarrassed by his friends and relatives. One of John W. Taylor's wives was Clark's cousin, and while another cousin became the plural wife of, of the Salt Lake City Mormon after 1890, Heber J. Grant had courted Clark's aunt, Fanny Woolley, after the manifesto, but Joseph F. Smith had denied Grant permission to marry her, and Matthias Cowley, who was now excommunicated, officiated at her wedding to a stake president in Colorado in 1902. Clark's bishop in Grantsville had married a plural wife in 1900 and continued to advocate plural marriages as late as 1909. And finally, the church in 1914 excommunicated his 82-year-old uncle, John W. Woolley, a patriarch and temple worker, who performing plural marriages, an event which both saddened Clark and caused him some embarrassment in his public career in the East. So it's no doubt that Clark's work in the East in the State Department in the 1910s and 20s he was 
mocked and probed and shamed about this issue of plural marriage. So there, it's hard to tell these motives, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the leaders coming up in the church and sort of their ties to polygamy. And so hopefully we can see how these tie in to our reactions to it today. It's important to, to note that four significant events relating to polygamy occurred in 1935. First, the Mormon Church, the LDS Church, excommunicated a group of polygamists, including Price W. Johnson, Edner Allred, and Carling Spencer, who had gathered in Short Creek, Arizona. Second, Arizona arrested six polygamists on charges of cohabitation. And third, Joseph Musser prints the first issue of Truth Magazine, which becomes a big deal. And fourth, the Utah legislature increased the penalty for cohabitation on March 14, 1935, with an act making unlawful cohabitation a felony and providing that all persons except the defendant must testify in proceedings thereof. The bill, which was drafted by lawyer and church apostle Hugh B. Brown, himself the child of polygamous parents, received overwhelming support in the LDS-dominated legislature. Evidence of the prevailing influence of the Mormon Church in the passage of this bill dismays Joseph Musser, and the bill, according to Musser, was, quote, fathered in the House by Lyle B. Nichols, an officer in the Mormon Church, enacted by a legislative assembly, the majority of whom were Mormons, and signed by Governor Henry H. Blood, a Mormon state president, and later president of the California Mission. A steering com committee comprised of leading church officials guided the bill through the legislature. And the bill made cohabitation a felony punishable by one to five years in the state penitentiary. This is similar to the penalties imposed upon 19th century Mormons, but now it was being done by the Utah government itself. Nothing could have indicated more clearly how decisively the main church had turned from this now embarrassing and unsettling part of its past. I definitely recommend that you read Kidnapped from the Land, the Government Raids on the Short Creek Polygamist by Martha Sontag Bradley. I mean, this is the irony. Can you imagine the angst and the anger and the confusion you would have on both sides? You're friends with these guys. You've gone to church with these guys. You're all marrying each other's family members. And all of a sudden, you who've been living the celestial law, you who have been told you are making the highest degree of sacrifice and, you know, the women who are doing this, who are sacrificing their hearts and their lives to live this principle are now all of a sudden the apostates and the bad guys. And you... You know, your own sister could be married to an apostle who is a monogamist, and yet you're a polygamist, and now you're the bad guys. We're seeing families literally torn apart by this, and there was a lot of politics involved. And now the church gets involved in the 1930s where they make it a crime. They Not only do they officially, as a church, turn their back on their polygamist brothers and sisters, they actually legally put some teeth behind it. There are other loose ends. Uh, for example, prominent men and women from prominent families, like in 1954, Edward Christian Eyring, who happens to be Henry B. Eyring's grandfather, um, had lived polygamy up until 1954. He became a monogamist when his wife Caroline died, leaving him married only to Caroline's sister, Emma. Emma's maiden name is Romney, to the Romney family, of course. I want to tell you a little bit about Emmy. Emma Romney Eyring, because she talks about being courted by a lot of polygamous suitors. And I just want you to imagine what her life was like. She grows up in Colonia Juarez, 
down where the Romneys lived. And here's what she says, quote, The Mormon colonies in Mexico were, of course, settled by people who had entered the practice of plural marriage. This law of marriage in the church was still in effect in Mexico when I was married. A man from Morelos came to visit us that, with the idea of taking home another wife. At this particular time, I had been forbidden to ride out from the horse, so he asked me to come into the parlor and write a letter for him. When we were in the parlor, he asked me to marry him, and I refused. He insisted that I think about it, but I still declined. He took a different girl home. One of the brethren and his wife, who had a daughter older than I, often took me out riding. One day he came down very early in the morning, and Mother, evidently understanding what he had come for, left the room. He visited for an hour hour or so, acting very peculiar, and finally asked me if I had a pencil and a piece of paper. He then wrote out a proposal. Very romantic. Another suitor, the bishop, who already had two wives, walked home with me occasionally, but a new situation was developing. Edward Christian Eyring, Caroline's husband, had asked me to marry him, but I had refused. My father once told me he wouldn't give Ed Eyring's little finger for all of the bishop. After I agreed to marry Edward C. Eyring, mother told me that father had worried for fear he had influenced my decision. It seemed strange that he would worry about influencing me after watching over me so carefully all my life. Ed and Caroline would come over, and while Caroline visited with mother, I went riding with Ed. He gave me a few presents before I was married. I married to Edward Christian Eyring on November 3rd, 1903. Okay, remember the date, 1903, post-manifesto, when I was 19 and became his second wife with Caroline's consent. The wedding took place in the home of President Anthony, Anthony Ivins, and I promised not to reveal the identity of the person who performed the ceremony. This was one of the last of such plural marriages to be performed, and it was done at a time when the leadership of the church was divided as to whether the practice should be continued in Mexico. It had been discontinued officially in the United States 13 years before, in 1890. The people in Mexico were still interested in continuing the practice as evidenced by my own marriage and that of my dear friend Anna. A larger number of the church officials came down there to marry plural wives, end quote. According to Camilla Eyring, who married Spencer Kimball, Edward Christian Eyring and his Romney wives remained in good standing in the church the entire time up into the 50s. So you have also these polygamists who had married in the post-manifesto and still remain in good standing. Yet you have all of these other fundamentalists who gather, you know, together in Short Creek who are being mocked and shamed and uh, they... They are persecuted by the FLDS or the LDS church. That would be a hard thing to talk about. Okay, so this is part one of this episode. Like I said, I've tried to cram. Like I was really, really not smart in thinking this through. But I just, you just kind of in your mind, you think, oh, the modern church has nothing to do with polygamy. This is going to be a really short history. Well, actually, it's not. So this is the end of part one. Um, I'm going to start part two now of this episode so you can hear more about the tie-ins of the leaders involved in Mormon polygamy.